1959, John Murray, a Scottish systematic theologian at Westminster Theological Seminary, published the first volume of his commentary on the Book of Romans, one that John Piper would later call the most beautiful commentary ever written. In the more than 60 years since it first appeared, Murray's commentary has changed the way scores of pastors and teachers read and teach the Bible, helping to draw many readers and congregations into deeper communion with their Savior. Now, Westminster Seminary Press has reprinted John Murray's commentary on Romans in a beautiful new hardcover edition updated with a new introduction by Sinclair Ferguson. I'm your host, John Curry, professor of pastoral theology at Westminster. In this podcast, we'll revisit the classic commentary with some of the pastors and teachers it has influenced the most. Along the way, we'll explore how Paul's letter to the Romans and John Murray's commentary on that letter help us to understand, teach, and preach Romans in the present day. I hope you'll join me as we explore together the Epistle to the Romans. Today I'm joined by two accomplished pastor teachers who have both benefited from Murray's commentary. Dr. Harry Reeder is senior pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. He is the author of From Members to a Flame and 3D Leadership. He's also a trustee and adjunct faculty member here at Westminster Theological Seminary. And many years ago, he served as pastor where our second guest now serves. Dr. Kevin DeYoung is senior pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. He's written a number of books, including Taking God at His Word and The Biggest Story Bible Storybook. He's also an associate professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me to talk about this wonderful commentary on Romans by John Murray. Great to be with you all. Yeah, it's good. It's a privilege, John. Gentlemen, let me start by just talking about a podcast on commentaries. We're about to do an interview on a commentary. Now, that might seem like an unusual inspiration for a podcast. We're going to talk about the specific value of Murray's commentary in a moment. But would you each talk about why commentaries are important to preachers, particularly expositors? And maybe as you talk about that, give us some insight on how you decide which commentaries to use as you're going through a a sermon series. Well, Harry's been been preaching through commentaries and using them longer than I have. <laughs> Maybe longer than I've been alive. I'm not sure. So I'll let him go first. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure quite how to take that, but uh, <laughs> I um, yeah yeah this was back in the dark ages we started using them. The uh, no, seriously, um, I'm afraid that I love commentaries, but I was recently rebuked because I'm actually preaching through Romans. Yeah. And I was thrilled when I heard that this was being republished by Westminster and so grateful for it. But uh, I was uh, talking with um, my friend Sinclair Ferguson, who was the who carried on the uh, great uh, tradition and legacy of systematic theology begun by John Murray at Westminster when when I and, and was teaching when I was just finishing at Westminster. Huh. And so we've developed a friendship since then. And I found out, he said, well, what commentaries are you using? And I've got 16 that I'm using wow. working through Romans. 
And I said to him, what did you have when you preached through it at First Press Columbia? And he said, oh, it's just barely over 100. Wow. So, um, so Sinclair obviously sees the value of commentaries. I see the value of commentaries. But uh, I'll mention it this way. Maybe the value of commentaries can be noted by how I use them. Mm. And then I'd love to get Kevin's uh, response mm. to this as well as his own insights on it. I, um, I always go to the text first and devotionally read it and then read it in application to my life. And then I try to outline it uh, grammatically. And then I try to bring my focus to a primary um, uh, teaching point that the text uh, has. Uh, some call it, the, uh, my, my homiletics professor at Westminster, Jay Adams, called it the telos, yeah. uh, the purpose of the text. Yeah. And then, um, and then I don't do anything else in it other than what I have noted and jotted down devotionally and analytically. And then I go to the commentaries to educate myself. And, um, and then I begin to work my way through them. And then I come back and start doing the homiletical work of introductions, illustrations, arrangement, linear connecting points, et cetera, to the sermon right. itself. Right. And, um, and then sometimes I will go listen to great preachers after I've done all that. I don't want to do that first because I'll end up just shortcutting everything. Yeah. If I'm listening to good preachers, such as Kevin and Sinclair and others, uh, some, just to check myself that I'm not getting off base or doing something that would be inappropriate. And then finally, I go back and rework illustrations, introductions, and conclusion. Uh, having done the historical grammatical work and the interpretive work of biblical theology. So that's the way I put commentaries into that process. Yeah. Uh, did you ask me also, did you ask us about how do we choose them, John? Yeah. How do you choose the commentaries you're going to want to work with? Yeah, John, I am, uh, I, I, let me just confess that I, um, I, I don't know whether this is appropriate, uh, shortcut or what, but I, um, the way I use, I select the commentaries is first by author and second by the company that publishes it. Huh, I've developed a certain trust uh, for them. Now, that doesn't mean I don't buy some commentaries I disagree with, right. uh, particularly in the area of critical commentaries. I divide commentaries into two. Uh, one are expositional commentaries that help me that I can trust to a certain degree, and the other are critical commentaries that challenge me. Yeah. And uh, so in the area of the uh, helpful commentaries in my sermon preparation that I focus upon, the critical commentaries serve their purpose. Uh, having done that, I like to use um, um, either the um, either confidence in the author of it, uh, not that I totally agree with them, but uh, the author and then the, the publishing company, have they developed a track record of having done a good filter of what kind of commentaries they are publishing in light of evangelical theology and reformed theology. Oh, that's that, that you've given us some uh, real insight into where they fit in the process and the parameters for selection. Thank you, Harry. Uh, Kevin, how do commentaries work for you? How do you select them? Where do they fit? How do you use them? Yeah, really good wisdom from, from Harry. And uh, I certainly agree that if you start with the commentaries, and there's no verse that says you can't start with the commentary, but right. generally, 
you, you want to do your own work. You want to get your head and heart engaged and not let the other resources tell you at the start what you should be thinking about. Now, the, the exception to that might be if you're at a particular text or passage that can really go in a couple of different directions. And before yeah. you go off track, let's make sure I'm not missing something. But generally, Harry's absolutely right. Do your your work in the original languages, do your devotional work, you know, just write yourself uh, empty. Just yeah. put down thoughts. Try not to self-edit at that point. Just yeah. get all your ideas out there. And you come to the commentaries at some point in the middle or the second half of the sermon process to, to, to check yourself, to get any insights you missed. All of that is, is really good. Uh, so how do I use, or how do I pick commentaries? Similar to what Harry said, you can look at authors or certain authors you just know. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether you agree with everything or not, you can look at Calvin, you know, contemporary authors, P.T. O'Brien, Don Carson. Right. Uh, lots of good folks. Uh, there are certain series. So the, the, the Pillar series, yeah. I find to be really good. The, yeah. the Tyndale series, Old and New Testament for shorter commentaries, mm. usually very good. The the old, whatever the abbreviation, NI, whatever that Erdman's did, yeah. the, the blue ones and yeah, the, the reddish right, ones. Right, yeah, right. And then there's there, there's newer ones. And of course, there's homiletical sort of commentaries like, okay. uh, you know, Westminster folks are working on that. And yeah. Phil Riken and Rick Phillips have done a great series on that. Yeah. Now, let me just add sure. that I'm so I'm a little different than. So Harry said he's got what, 17, 18, 19 commentaries and Sinclair City's using 100. Yeah. And I think I remember Ligon saying he, he's of that school too. He's got his assistant make copies for 27 countries. I think Rick Phillips does the same. So for better or worse, I am not, I am fine five or six. Okay. Uh, I usually start a book of the Bible and have maybe seven, eight or nine. Right. And, uh, you know, and I might use the, the little books like, Carson has a, a book that he edited and or revised a number of times, commentaries on commentaries. And, yeah. and now today you can go to best commentaries websites and you got to be careful with websites, but a lot of those are, are pretty helpful and will give you a sort of, here's how you order it. And it's technical, it's pastoral, it's devotional. That's helpful. So I, I get them and I tend to find that if I start with seven, eight or nine, you know, after a few few months, I yeah. realize you know, there's really four of these that I'm using all the time. And so many commentaries, we're going to talk about what makes John Murray's commentary so good in just a moment. Right, but right. a lot of commentaries end up being commentaries on other commentaries. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a purpose in that. There's a usefulness in, you know, scholars trying to survey the scholarly landscape. But especially for pastors, I find that if... This one guy has read all the stuff exactly. and is digesting it for me. Yeah. I don't need to read all of the 10 people that he's reading. Right. And so maybe I'm, I'm not as hardworking as, as my other brothers here, <laughs> but I hone in on just a few that I find particularly useful and trust that they're going to have surveyed the landscape. Yeah. And I... I, I marvel at the guys. I think H.B. Charles did the same thing. He does, you know, 25 commentaries each yeah. week. Wow. And what, what did you do? I know you're asking us questions, but you, yeah. 
preached and, and pastored for a lot of years. Yeah. Were you on the give me five good ones or I want to read 20 and make sure I don't miss yeah. it? Yeah, I usually started a series with a with a lot of commentaries, uh, uh, selecting uh, trusted authors, uh, trusted publishers, critical commentaries, uh, commentaries that were better at exegesis, better at giving me homiletics and exposition. And then I would find by the time I'd been a few months in a series, I was down to two or three you know, one that had read everything else. So, you know, when I was preaching through the gospel of John, for example, once you're, you're in Don Carson's commentary on John, he's read everything there is on John. And uh, so you're getting, that's really getting filtered through for you. So I, I would find by the time I was in a series, and maybe if I was in a difficult passage or a more complex passage, where I had more questions, I'd, I'd fan back out again into further commentaries. Uh, but I, that was sort of the approach that I, that I took. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, Kevin, the Erdman series, the, the as you put it, the the you, clearly you take your dust jackets off, too, because it was yellow, you know, the mustard yellow, <laughs> right. but blue with the red. And uh-huh. it was that it was that series that, you know, Murray's commentary on Romans appeared. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this commentary in particular and John Murray in particular. I was, you know, Harry, you mentioned Sinclair Ferguson. I, I was in a conversation with him a few weeks back and I, I mentioned to him that as I read Murray, He's one of the people in the history of the church that I really wish I had the opportunity to meet as I look at his piety, as I look at his work. And then I feel like in some ways I kind of I kind of met him through my theology professor, Dr. Richard Gaffin, who gave us Murray's, you know, much of yeah. Murray's tradition. I wonder if each of you would talk to us about how did you get exposed to Murray? How did you get uh, impacted by his works? And then maybe talk a little bit about what he means to you and then this commentary in particular. Uh, John, may I just go back and basically affirm what Kevin just said? Uh, Sure. While I don't get just three or four, I do get 15 to 18 commentaries. Yeah. I think as I go through the series, I end up pretty much where Kevin does. Yeah. There's about two or three, and I'll still check the others to make sure I'm not missing something. Right. But I, I usually end up with two, three, or four. Yeah. That, yeah, that, you know, those are the ones I know I'm getting to meet. Those are the ones that have given me a distillation of the work that they've done, and I can trust them. And the other thing that I do that may be helpful to introduce to other listeners yeah. Is when I start a series, I'll usually give three commentary recommendations to my congregation. Huh. And I'll, I'll put it as a 101, oh, a 201, and a yep. 301. That's a great idea. Uh, like uh, Romans, I gave them Murray 301. I gave them Stott 101. And I gave them RCs uh, because those, Stott and RC oh, are so readable. Yeah. And uh, so I gave them that 101, 201, and 301. So, yeah. Um, that's great. I had That's gave cool another great. 301, which I've now rescinded because of what, uh, Murray's availability. <laughs> and he's now the one I give at that uh, at that level. So I, I think I'm just uh, for, in practice, I get to where right. Kevin begins. Yeah, yeah sure. And, uh, and so I, I, I just wanted to affirm that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Murray, uh, the way I did, the way I got there is I was a when I was in college, I was an assistant to the pastor, and I'm not going to use his name for various reasons, but he was probably a um, almost like a son to uh, Richard Gaffin um, uh, and, um, and very close to Sinclair Ferguson. 
and he was a, um, a, a very much mentored directly by Dr. Edmund Clowney. Wow. And um, so he walked me through Richard Gaffin's uh, Resurrection and Revelation, and then he introduced me to Voss and biblical theology. And then through him, I got the four-volume series on the, the works of John Murray. Okay. And then I, I said, I'm going to go to Westminster. And now I tend to uh, I tend to gravitate towards systematic theologians who are expositional. Yeah. <clears throat> now what I mean by that, some systematic theo theologians seem to be driven by the laws of logic and philosophy. Um, but not Murray. Murray's systematic theology, and that's why I think his commentary is so valuable. I'm going, I'm jumping ahead here. But his commentary, his systematic theology comes out of exegesis, right. and therefore expositional uh, work in the text. And um, <clears throat> and so I um, I was introduced to that very volume that you and Kevin have referred to the, with the yellow cover, and uh, and I got that first volume. And it was it was amazing. I got the four volumes on his works, and then I realized that it was when I was in high school that he retired. And then I realized that I can still get Gaffin if I go to West. I mean, I can still yeah. get systematic theology from uh, John Murray uh, when I get there from Gaffin, right. who has taken it in his own unique style. And then while I was there, Sinclair shows up, and I get I get Murray's Scottish accent as well. Yes, yeah. uh, that's um, and I've just uh, I am I am an unabashed um, devotee of um, the systematic theology and exegetical work that was at the at the foundation of it of John Murray. Yeah. And, um, and then I got the, the one other personal note. I got the privilege that uh, Dr. Clowney began to play golf, so he, he would ask Bill and I to take him out, uh -huh. and we would take him out to play golf, and you would not believe the download of his analysis of Murray that I would get in the golf cart for three and a half hours. Wow. It was just completely astonishing. That's and how cool. was he as a golfer? <laughs> uh, he, um, let's just say uh, he was a better preacher, okay? You know, uh, Harry, you, Harry, you mentioned... Um, you mentioned uh, Murray's approach, and I remember reading uh, it was one volume, but it, it, it had compended two volumes. Right. And in the introduction of the second volume, Murray says this. It was just remarkable to me. Uh, he said uh, he apologized to the reader for the delay in the release of the second volume. And then he says this, because exposition of the word of God is an arduous task, and so it should be. So it struck me here you have this systematic theologian who's writing a commentary on the New Testament and he's developing it expositionally. I, that was just, that was uh, paradigm shaping and striking to me. Uh, Kevin, uh, tell us about your um, exposure to John Murray. How did you get exposed to him? What does he mean to you? And then yeah, maybe I, talk to us about the commentary itself. Sure. Uh, I, I would think that the first thing I read by John Murray, and this is probably true for a lot of people is redemption accomplished and applied. Yeah. And that started as articles in the OPC magazine. Isn't that right, John? You might uh, be right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I remember that. But that that speaks to how and why it's so readable and uh -huh. why people continue to read that book. He's teaching you the terminology for soteriology, Christology, the work of right. Christ, all the words for atonement, expiation, propitiation. He's giving you all that. And then walking through so orderly, and you get in that book 
what made Murray, why we're still reading him today. Yeah. Very orderly, very logical, very biblical. I mean, Harry is really onto something. You have a systematician who wants to do exegesis, which yeah. is a great combination. And, and even though, you know, Harry's right to put, you know, the Romans commentary from, from Murray, maybe at the 301 level, yeah. but don't let that scare people off. He is readable whenever, yeah. almost whenever you find someone long, decades after they're gone and people are still reading their books. One yeah. of the reasons okay, they had something to say from the Bible, but they also knew how to say it in a way that people could understand. That's a great observation. And, and, yeah. And so Murray really is a clear, concise writer. Yeah. He doesn't, uh, there's not a lot of purple prose in it, but he gets to the point. He knows how to explain things. He knows how to speak clearly. And if anyone out there, probably everyone listening to this has Redemption Accomplished in Flight, you absolutely should, must read that. There are a few yes. things you say must, but you must. And any pastor out there, if you don't have the banner of truth, the four volumes that Harry mentioned, the collected writings of John Murray. Yeah. Uh, I just was reading through those again last year and I was, I was learning things. I was edified. Yeah. I hope someone, uh, you know, Ian Murray, no relation has like a hundred page biography of yeah. John Murray in yeah. volume three. Terrific. Yeah. I don't know if that's been published separately or banner has plans to do that, but they really should. Yeah. That's so good to give you, uh, an overview of his life. Yeah. And then the Romans commentary is, it really is unique among commentaries. There's lots of good commentaries. There's lots of good commentaries on Romans, but you have Murray thinking theologically. So some commentaries get so, they just want to, it's just second temple Judaism. It's just exhaustive word studies. And they never sort of get up and see the forest for the trees. Right, so yeah. he's thinking like a theologian and if, of Romans of all books, you got to lift your head up and help us understand the theology going on here. Mm. But it's it's not, first of all, a systematic theology. I'm all for that. Yeah. But it, it's, a, it's a commentary on Romans. And he's, he's obviously learned that he understands the debates. He understands the history of interpretation. But he's, he's done the digesting for you. Some commentaries are, I prepared a 12-course meal, and I still have all the spices and all of the condiments all on the table. You go ahead, take it, make yourself a meal. Yeah, He's mixed it together, put it in the oven, cooked it up, and he's ready to, to give you something yeah. you can feast on. And you can see enough of his work to think along with him. And yet he's giving you such wonderful insights, pastoral, biblical, yes. theological, yes. that you read it and you think, I want to know Jesus more. I'm yes. getting to know Jesus more. Yeah. And my, my mind is really engaged. So you can yeah. see what Harry was talking about, the arduous task, how seriously he took the task, how long it took him. Yeah. And there's a reason that you know, Westminster's republishing it and why people are still reading it. You know, you refer to the biography that Murray, Ian Murray did in those, in those works. I think, I think Banner may have put it out as an edition of the Banner of Truth magazine many, many years ago. It's ah. one little single issue. Uh, but what I remember from the biography, I've read it, I've read the biography two or three times. And one of the things I remember as a Westminster faculty member is how the other faculty 
talked about his piety. Yeah. And some of the letters at the end of that biography, as Murray's retiring, as Murray is going to be with the Lord, as they know he's dying, some of the letters from people like R.B. Kuyper and E.J. Young and what they said about his piety. And that comes out in the commentary. If, if people can stick with the commentary to get to Romans 12 and Romans 13, some of the pastoral and discipleship material uh, is absolutely uh, profound and helpful and edifying. And um, it, it's just worth the read devotionally uh, once you get there. Yeah, one, one quick thing that I remember yeah. from the biography you know, he went back and forth. He's from Scotland, obviously. I think it said, you know, some 25 times or something. He went back and forth. Right. And then his last years was there. And he was so happy to be doing local church ministry. And right. he was doing it in the States, of course. But as I recall, his heart always longed to be, you know, if he could have just drew it up for himself, he would have been a pastor. Yeah, that's would right. Have been a full-time pastor, right. preacher. Yeah. And that's what you want in someone who's gifted like him to be a professor and theologian and exegete. He he saw it as a stewardship of his gifts and what people, the opportunities God had given to him. But there was always a part of him, ah, my heart is in the local church. And if I could do any, I, I would pastor a church. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you want. You, you don't want someone who's teaching future pastors who feels like, well, where I really want to be is mainly at the academic conference. Nothing wrong with those. I love yeah. those are good, too. Yeah. But you want a man like Murray who was almost felt like he was pulled out of local church ministry, but he did it because he knew how important it was to train the next generation. And he's continuing to train future generations with his yeah. books. Yeah. Amen. And, and amen. You know, yeah, Harry, yeah. We, yeah, go ahead. I just say, too, that Kevin is exactly, uh, again, target. I would just add my footnote affirmation. Um, I do want to say this. When I say 301, in case anybody adopts what I do, I want to make it clear. I, try, I don't really reserve 301 because the commentary, I think, is hard. I do it because uh, I, I give them a 301 because of what I think the depth and right. dissolution of it is. And yeah. that's why I put Murray. Murray, I, I agree, is very readable. He is he he so much convicts me uh, of his ability to put things uh, on the editing floor. Yeah, I, I can't find the ability to discipline myself to do that. Yeah. Uh, he, he is very concise, very understanding. He's really an excellent writer. Yeah, he and, is. Um, and so um, I agree with that. And then look, can I give you just one little anecdote story? Sure. And I think people on the Reformation too. The, the tour of the Reformation too, following the steps of Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, and uh, Knox. Um, when I do, when I take that tour, I always go if I can and take them to Bad Bay, hmm. uh, where he was raised and where he finished out his life hmm. in his home. I take them to the little church at the bottom and tell them this is where his heart always was. Yeah, in, the, in this small church pastoral ministry. And one time, John, when I took him over, when I took people over to his grave and got my chance to do my Murray talk there, uh, up walks, I thought it was John Murray. I wow. thought, I said, oh my goodness, the, res the resurrection is happening and I'm getting left behind. <laughs> and, uh, so I, uh, it, 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 I knew, and then I found out it was John Murray's uh, uncle. I'm wow. sorry, nephew. 
John Murray's nephew. Nephew. Wow. Um, and, um, and so I, I'll never, I thought it was John Murray just to make wow. it with a few pounds of extra flesh on him. There and, is. Uh, and, and then I got to hear him talk and uh, it was just like an amazing moment. And he, and the insights he took us to again affirms what Kevin said, and uh, you, I know it's part of your presentations, John, and that is his piety. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's exactly where he went to when he gave us insights into his life mm. while we were standing there. Mm. John, did you know his 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 wife, his, his widow, because she was some thirty. 25 yeah. years younger and she was yeah. in the OPC just she yeah. she passed away only somewhat recently. Yeah, I never had the privilege of meeting her but yeah, that would be kind of be before my time but that's right. He he was married very late in life and and she was much younger than he and then then they had the children. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh that's that's quite a story as well. Yeah, I didn't have the privilege of of meeting her or Professor Murray which would have been I, I had to do a double take in the book. There's some wonderful pictures. Yeah. And and I thought, surely they mean grand granddaughter he's holding <laughs> on his lap. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I got a bunch of kids. I'm 45 and I yeah. hope I'm not having them at 68 or whatever he was, <laughs> I think, when he had his first. Yeah. Well, you know, I think he had devoted his life to the service of the Lord and the Lord just rewarded him, I think, there, there at the end oh, of his a, life. A, yeah. yeah. Amen. Yeah. 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 Kevin, we're talking about John Murray's distinct contributions through the commentary, his commentary on Romans. And uh, of course, justification by faith is the dominant theme that runs all the way through uh, the book of Romans. You've studied and written on justification pretty deeply. Can you talk to us about justification in Romans and maybe illuminate a little bit for us what Murray does with that? Obviously, no one can preach through or should preach through Romans without uh, talking often and to some extent always about justification. Right. Uh, yeah. Of course, Murray's writing before the so-called new perspectives on Paul. Yeah. And it, it's actually refreshing not to have to unpack all of that and show yeah. how we need to, uh, that the old perspective was actually fine. So yeah. it's Murray is, so good at, in a learned way, talking about all the things you need to talk about, what it's the, the D-K-I-O-O root and those verbs and those nouns, righteousness, justice, how do we understand D-K-I-O-S-U-N-E-T-E-U, the righteousness of God. Yeah. So he does that, but he doesn't just stop there. He wants to bring us up and then say, what does this mean for the Christian life? What does this mean for how God mm. saves us? I was just, this is just from Romans 3. Yeah. Just to give you and the listeners a, a taste for what Murray does. So he's commenting on verse 24. Read a few sentences. The combination of the terms freely and by his grace has the effect of emphasizing the completely unmerited character of God's justifying act. No element in Paul's doctrine of justification is more central than this. God's justifying act is not constrained to any extent or degree by anything that we are or do, which could be esteemed as predisposing God to act. Uh, at the end of the paragraph, I'll just skip. Merit of any kind on the part of man, when brought into relation to justification, contradicts the first article of the Pauline doctrine and therefore of his gospel. Yeah. It is the glory of the gospel of Christ that is one of free grace. Wow. It's so good. It's yeah. well said. And 
you know, I, I've, you're, you're kind to say I've written in depth about justification, just a dabbler, but I've noticed, and many other people have, that justification is as relevant as, as ever, not just in the technical theological debates, but we live in a time, just go online and you'll see, we live in a time where people are desperately searching for justification. That's what Twitter food fights are often about, is mm. how do I mm. know yeah. that I'm righteous and usually it's by proving that you're not righteous. Oh, wow. uh, I've used the phrase that I, I read in an article by Wilfred McClay called the infinite extensibility of guilt. Mm. He argued we live in a time where guilt is everywhere. You are guilty for not doing enough to solve world problems. You're guilty maybe because of your skin color, because you're a man. You're yeah. guilty for the food that you eat. So we have this residual kind of quasi-Christian conception of guilt and original sin, yeah. and yet we no longer have the Christian mechanism for forgiveness of sin, redemption from sin. Yeah. So we absolutely need the doctrine of justification, and preachers need to connect these dots for people. They don't realize they are searching for someone in the universe to tell them they're okay. Yeah, And that's the quest, the human quest, to be justified and yeah. left to ourselves, we go about that in all the wrong ways. Yeah. And Romans puts us in the right way, and Murray's commentary helps us see it in such brilliant colors. Yeah, boy, we could talk, uh, we could do entire podcasts, a whole series on that theme that you've just given to us and how um, the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the, the declaration that we are acquitted of our guilt and accepted by God through justification and how that should affect how we relate to one another and uh, past sins, present sins. And as we wrestle with sin in our life, that's a great observation. Uh, Kevin, let me ask you this question. Uh, also, as, as we're, as we're moving through uh, our questions here, um, it's preaching through Romans. Why would a, why would a pastor choose to preach through Romans or why would a, a pastor choose to to wait to preach through Romans? I remember hearing John Piper say when he finally went through Romans, he'd walked up to it several times and decided not to do it. So why would a pastor do it? Why would he choose not to do it? Well, true confessions. I preached from Romans many times. I have not preached through the whole book of Romans. Okay, okay. And for that reason, so you set me up. I didn't know that question, but you set me up nicely. Uh, it's not that other people have to decide this the same way, but I have had in my head that I need to be, or I want to be a pastor 20 years and I want to be 45. So mm. I just passed the 20 year mark in pastoral ministry and I just mm. turned 45. So I'm looking at, at Romans. I've done little, little series here and there. Yeah. In uh, you know one-off sermons all over the place, but yes, it does feel like it is this wonderful, glorious Mount Everest to climb, and especially for a Reformed pastor. Now, I don't actually think it's probably a good idea for many of us, or any of. If you don't have the gifts of Lloyd Jones, you shouldn't right. spend as much time as Lloyd right. Jones spent, or even Piper. What did he do? Eight years in wow. Romans. Mm. So very few of us should do that. But even there, it it does feel like the sort of holy grail for a reformed man to set out to preach through Romans. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that I had 
thoughts firm in my head that I had experience under my belt and sort of selfishly, I, not that you can't redo a ser series. We all do that from time to time, but I didn't want to, you know, kind of shoot my Romans wad when I was 31 <laughs> years old and feel yeah. like there it is, everybody. Yeah. There's my great Romans series. I wanted, I wanted to get better as a preacher. So yeah. th there is some real wisdom in waiting for a young yeah. preacher before you go and do the whole thing. Those are great reasons. So, you know, and I'm with you. Uh, I, I've preached little series or sermons out of Romans, but for similar reasons, I haven't in my ministry yet walked all the way through Romans. I just, not, I guess neither of us are yet where Harry is just able to make his way through Romans. You know, Harry, Kevin just mentioned to us uh, why a preacher would or would not choose to preach through Romans at a particular time. And I think I recall you hearing you tell us I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who, when he was asked how he decided when to preach through Romans, he said, it's when I got Romans 6, when I understand Romans 6. Oh, you've recently just uh, preached here at Westminster on Romans 6 and really called us uh, to a sanctified life based on life in Christ. Could you tell us a little bit about Murray's contribution to, on Romans 6, what it means and why it matters to us? John, great question. And um, so when I started Romans, if I can reference Kevin's insights on this, I was very much the same way. I waited to do Romans until I had pastoral ministry under my belt, mm -hmm. until I had some convictions in areas that were pretty rock solid in terms of Reformed theology and working my way through it. Um, I am now preaching through it uh, for the second time. Mm. And um, and mm. I honestly am finding things now I never found the first time. I I didn't want I I did not want to preach through it until actually I had become a better preacher. I uh, wanted to do as much justice to it as I could. Yet I've always felt inadequate as a preacher to preach through Romans. H having said that, you're referring to Martin Lloyd Jones, who decided to preach through Romans. On, fr on the Friday night expositional that actually started as a fellowship meeting, and it ended up a time in which Martin Lloyd-Jones would preach for over an hour. Wow. And that's where he started Romans. Uh, but before that, one of his leaders came to him and said, when are you going to preach? When are you going to preach through Romans? And he said, I'll preach through Romans when I understand Romans 6. Hmm. And, um, and so he later started. And, uh, and, and begin to work his way through Romans. So uh, in answer to your question, you know, the way I, I see it that helps me yeah. is, uh, you know, is, is that um, because Paul can't get to Rome, he's going to send them the gospel that he is unashamed to preach and he is eager to preach to them. Yeah. And uh, so he's giving them this exposition. He first of all speaks of the wrath of God that's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then he points out, that we're all ungodly and unrighteous. Yeah. And he says, the good news is the gospel is the power of God and the righteousness of God. It's got, so we are helpless and hopeless. We are unable and unwilling to come to Christ who alone can make us right. Therefore, the gospel is the power of God in regeneration to raise us from our depravity to come to Christ. And the gospel is the righteousness of God to remove the guilt of our sin and through his atoning death and then to clothe us, 
clothe us with his righteousness so that not only are the gates of hell shut, but now the gates of heaven are open hmm. to the righteousness of Christ. Hmm. Well, then what about the Christian life? You got a new heart? You got a new record? What about your new life? And I believe that Romans 6, 7, and 8 is the best distillation for, the, for discipleship in the Christian life. Yeah. And chapter, and uh, it gives us uh, it gives us the foundation of discipleship, which is union with Christ. It gives us the information on how to use the law of God and how not to use the law of God, which John Newton said is the biggest issue in the Christian life, huh. not to misuse the law of God, but and and learn how to you use the law of God. Well, he gives us union with Christ basically in chapter six from the theology of baptism. And then he gives us how do you deal with the law of God and how do and, and now knowing that reigning sin has been broken, what do you do with remaining sin? Particularly if the remaining sin feels like reigning sin sometimes. Mm. And um, and then he takes us to uh, to the walk with Christ in Romans chapter eight, walking in the Spirit by the Spirit. The great the great having given us the work of Christ to save us, he now gives us the work of the Holy Spirit on the saved in Romans chapter eight, which I believe is the Hallelujah course uh, in um, in the book of Romans. Well, it may be in the book of, in, in the whole Bible. Wow! So Romans six, seven, and eight it deals with union with Christ. He he teaches union with Christ two ways. One from the theology of baptism, that when Christ died, you died. When Christ died for your sin, you died with him to sin. And when Christ was raised to God, you were raised to God for the, to walk in the newness of life. And then, um, and then he said, and then he goes to, well, what do you do with the law of God? Well, he, here's what you don't do it. It has no power to save you. It has no power, and you have no power to use it to save yourself. But here's what it doesn't convert. It confirms. It doesn't redeem. It reveals. It reveals your sin, your sin nature, and your sinful impotency uh, to to please God. And then, uh, and then he takes you back to union with Christ. This time, not using baptism. This time, using uh, why God placed marriage in this world. It's not just a blessing to humanity. It points to our covenantal relationship right. with Christ. Having given us the sign of the covenant, baptism, he now gives us the picture of the covenant, which is marriage. Mm. And um, and mm. so when when Christ died, we died to the law. And, uh, and we are alive in Jesus Christ. Now we are free to use the law in its right use. And then he explains that in Romans 7. And how do you walk in the newness of life? Because the key to the Christian life is not fixing your eyes on yourself, on your pastor, on your discipler, or on the law. The, the, you fix your eyes on Jesus. Yeah. And the law yeah. is a mirror to show you your need of him and, uh, and direct him as to how to love the Lord and how to love uh, your neighbors, yourself, et cetera. So I, I'm, you know, I just, I'd love Romans six. It kicks yeah. off uh, Romans seven, and then it comes to this glorious uh, um, crescendo in Romans chapter eight. And nobody does it like Murray in right. terms of a commentary. Nobody does it like Murray. Yeah. And um, so that's, um, that's why I, 
I, I love I love the book of I love the uh, not only the book of Romans, but I could live forever in Romans six, seven and eight. And yeah. and right now, my con- I'm actually preaching through it and my congregation thinks we're going to live forever in Romans six, seven and eight. <laughs> well, it sounds like uh, as you've given us that really clear synopsis of those chapters, it's almost like you have uh, a little discipleship manual in the in the middle of the book of Romans. Uh, That's how, right. How to live the Christian. Um, would you talk just for a minute pastorally about the importance of this doctrine of sanctification today as we look at the culture, as we look at the church? Uh, how relevant is it? Well, you know, but Paul knows that there are people that are, there are people that are going to take the gospel and twist it. And they're going to twist it in one way to bind you with legalism, right. or they're going to twist it the other way to keep you bound in the practice of sin in libertinism. Hmm. And so he's saying you got to avoid both of them. And there's a balance in the New Testament, whether you're looking at Jude or Peter or um, James, they're always warning you against legalism and they're warning you against um they're warning you against libertinism, nomianism, and antinomianism. Mm. So, to, so that you to know the right use of the law, there are some things that you must know, and that means you know who you are. Now you're ready to do. Here's the way I do it. I borrowed from a guy that mentored me years, years ago, and I've tried to keep developing this. I call it no be do. And um, that is not a Star Wars character, no, be, do. <laughs> Those are three words, no, be, do. Go to read Romans 6, read Romans 7, and how many times does he rhetorically, expo- with a question, expose the, th- the gospel error and then say, do you not know? Right. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you not know? And then he unfolds the answer. Then he says, consider yourself dead to Mm -hmm. sin and Mm -hmm. alive to God in Christ. Then he begins to tell you, present the members of your body. Now we get to the do. You don't start with do. You start with know. Know who you are in Christ. For instance, in the book of Ephesians, he takes three chapters to tell you he takes three whole chapters to tell you 20 plus times he says who you are in Christ, in the beloved, in Christ. He takes 21 times to, uh, well, I think it's closer to 28 times. Then in chapter four, he says, now present yourself and uh, put, all, put, on the, put off the old man and put on the new man. So gospel commands, imperatives, don't come until gospel indicatives have instructed us. So know, be, consider, know who you are in Christ. Be. You know, the answer is, do you not know that when Christ died, you died to sin? Well, the answer to that question is no, they don't know it. If they did, they wouldn't be asking the question, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? They would be asking the question, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, didst die for me? That's what they would be asking. So get them to know, then be who they are in Christ because of Christ. 
Now comes working out what he has worked in, and now comes the doing. And so that's the key for me, the, the, the foundation of sanctification in discipleship is knowing my regeneration, uh, that sin's dominion has been broken, justification, sin's guilt and shame has been removed. Now we can begin to eradicate the practice of sin and put on Christ. Know, be, now you're ready to do in following Christ with, and here's the key, with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Yeah. Who will deliver me from this remaining sin, this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. Christ delivers us not only from the bad heart to a new heart, not only from the bad record to a new record, but from the sin-filled life to a spirit-filled life in Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, that's just, again, a great synopsis and pointing us to Christ and the, the power of Christ in us, the, uh, the righteousness of Christ for us and sanctification. That, that's the paradigm, which, of course, Murray uh, made so much of, that indicative and imperative structure of the gospel. Uh, right. Harry, as we're winding up in uh, this interview. By the way, John, may I just say simply, you're right. It is glorious. I'm so inadequate in expressing it. But every time I get into it, it's almost for me like getting saved all over again. Amen. Yeah, that's mar that is marvelous. So some final thoughts as we conclude here on John Murray's commentary. Uh, one of my thoughts is I'm so glad Westminster Seminary Press is reproducing this because this is the commentary on Romans I want available for my grandkids. Um, Kevin, what's the value of Murray's commentary on Romans? Why would you commend that to your congregation today? I love that Westminster Seminary Press is redoing it. We, we, we need it in, it, it's, it's attractively done. You can read it. It's a good typeface. Sometimes you go back to the older ones and it's 40 year old typeface. It's just hard. You want it inviting. And this, yeah. you've done a really good job. All the folks have in right. putting this out. I absolutely agree with that. If if someone had the time and the initiative to get through a, a meaty commentary on Romans, yes, this would be at the top of the list. You're going to know Romans better. You're going to know your theology better. Mm -hmm. You're going to know the gospel better. You're going to know the Lord Jesus better. Mm -hmm. And it's such a rich journey through the book. I remember years ago, I, I read Lord of the Rings I hadn't read it, and the movies were coming out 20 years ago, and I thought, i got to read this. i got to get the pictures in my head before Peter Jackson tells me what the pictures are. <laughs> and I remember somebody, an older Christian, saying, oh, I, am, I, I envy you. You're getting to read through it for the first time. Mm. And wow. it was such a sweet journey. So, okay, maybe Murray's Epistle to the Romans is not going to be quite as nonstop page turning as Tolkien, <laughs> right. but actually it will be even more edifying. Yeah. And to make your way through this, have it be in the, whether you're a teacher, a pastor, a student, or you just want to learn and grow it in your faith. It's what, 600 pages here, make it a devotional companion for yeah. a year, even as you yeah. study Romans and yeah. your heart and your head would do well. Uh, that's a great commendation of the book and uh, its usefulness. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us. We're grateful for your ministry and grateful you took time to be with Thank us. Thank you. Grateful to be with you and Harry. Uh, Harry, let me ask you about this particular republication of the commentary 
on the epistle to the Romans. Um, why would you commend it to your congregation as you have? Would you commend it to your ministerial colleagues? Uh, what's the importance of this work by Murray uh, for the next generation? Well, stop short of selling your family, but whatever else you need to do, get this commentary. It's not only invaluable for what I think is Mount Everest in the 66 mountain peaks of the Bible. Mm. Uh, it is also the template for commentaries yeah. uh, in your future uh, use of commentaries. And uh, and secondly, it it gives you exegetically what I believe is one of the most important books for a pastor to read, which is Redemption Accomplished and Applied by yeah. John Murray. Yeah. Uh, early on, Dr. Clowney, who I mentioned, Dr. Gaffin, who I mentioned, and um, and and my uh, mentor at the time, I had another mentor uh, named Al Martin, and mm -hmm. all of them said, read Redemption. Al Martin went to say, read it every other year. Now, mm -hmm. I have not done that. I do. I have read Redemption. I've, I've worn, I've, I don't know how many copies I've worn out, yeah. but um, I do read it about every five years. Uh, it, it And and what you're getting in redemption accomplished and applied around the gospel, uh, the order salutis of the gospel, what you're getting is the distillation in systematic theology of right. what Romans comes, what Romans gives you exegetically. Yeah. And um, so I, uh, I think that I, I just think y'all have. What y'all have done to make this available is extraordinary. In fact, may I just say a word about Westminster Publications? The fact that in this day, as we deal with progressivism, the republication of Machen's liberalism and Christianity is invaluable. And now this commentary in a day in which I sense perhaps a resurgence of the primacy, not the exclusivity, the primacy of preaching and a resurgency of the, of the depth and height and breadth and weight and joy of, of, um, of the gospel and reformed theology to get this commentary available is a great, is a great asset. And so thank you for doing that. Well, Harry, uh, thank you for being with us. And it could be, uh, we really couldn't think of a better way to conclude this particular interview than that comment on the primacy of preaching and the priority of the gospel and the resurgence of that from our pulpit. So Harry, thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your time with us today. Thank you. Uh, it was a great privilege to be uh, with you again, John, and of course, with my friend, Kevin. <laughs>